Waltrout Violet Boda was murdered sometime between August 24th and August 25th, 1977, and this is her daughter's story. At the beginning of 1933, Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. In March, hundreds were arrested as Nazis begin to arrest their political opponents. By the end of March, the first Nazi concentration camp is finished and opens. Jewish organizations announced the economic boycott of German goods and the Enabling Act was passed making Adolf Hitler the dictator of Germany. In the midst of all this horror, a little girl is born, who lived her first three or so decades in Germany. This is the story of Waltrout Violet Boda's murder. Hello? Hi, Sandra. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, Kelly. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Waltrout grew up in Germany during World War II and emigrated to Canada in the 1960s. As Sandra, her daughter, doesn't have contact with her mother's family, she has no information about her life as a child, what she lived through, or her family life growing up. Sandra was only nine years old when her mother was murdered, still too young to remember if her mother told stories or have had the time to ask questions about her mother's life. She wishes she would have had those years as she grew to get to know her mother and learn what her life was like. Her mother's murder has caused so much stress in Sandra's life and she is proud of how she has been able to overcome a lifetime of trauma. What kind of things did you like to do together? Um, well, she took us um, traveling a lot. Like we went to Germany every year when I was little and then the last two years, we ended up going to Mexico. Um, she would take us to the zoo, see the animals, or dating. She would take us on the Paddlewell Queen and the River Rouge. So um, she did a lot of adventures with you guys then? Yeah, I would say it was <laughs> yeah. quite adventurous, yeah. Sandra and her brother were close enough growing up. They fought like siblings, but played together and hung out as well. Sandra's brother is exceptionally introverted, even today as a man. He has internalized all of his trauma that he has lived through. But looking back, Sandra sees that this personality may have added to the difficulties in establishing a deeply rooted sibling bond between them. As a child, you don't think about the reasons why people are the way they are, but as you grow, you see things very differently. And his introverted personality may have been cemented in place after the deep sadness he experienced when his precious mother was killed. When Waltrout moved to Canada, she arrived in Winnipeg and lived there until her death. Sandra and her brother grew up in Winnipeg and both still call it home. 
Sandra remembers the early years of her life being filled with love and happy thoughts, thinking of the mother that would engage with her, play with her, love her. All that changed when they went on a trip to Mexico, to an oceanfront hotel, to a place that things happened that she still doesn't have answers to all these years later, to a place she didn't want to go to in the first place, but ended up in, to a place and time that her little nine-year-old heart stays in. Tell me about the horrible day that you found out that your mother was murdered. You were young, so what kind of memories do you have of that day? Um, Well, interesting enough, I was quite um, prophetic as a child, and I had asked her not to, that we shouldn't go on this trip, and I really was quite upset, like, to the point of taking a temper tantrum, and she said, why? And I said, because something bad's going to happen, and I didn't really want to tell her that she was going to die, um, but she insisted on going, and then she actually had me at the babysitter's, but then she came back for me and said, I can't leave without Sandra. So I went, and um, I just had this bad feeling that something was going to happen, and um yeah, she went home or out one night and didn't come back to the hotel. And I just remember, I know if she left us alone, like she would always come back and it was late and she wasn't back yet. And I can't remember the time, but I just remember going and walking the streets in Mazatlan, like looking for her, just going to familiar places and asking if anyone had seen her. So you were nine and ten years old. You're sitting in the hotel waiting for your mother to come back. And, and what happened? Well, so um, as I said, I went looking for her. And then I guess I got so tired at one point, I just went to bed. Um, and then I woke up very early in the morning. And I just looked over. And she wasn't there. And I just knew she was dead like I just knew in my mind that she was gone and I went down to the lobby and I just sat there and I sat there with my brother and then she had a boyfriend a Mexican boyfriend and he came in and said that um, that she was dead and I had you met this guy before, like in in Canada, or you had, or or in Mexico, or anywhere? Yeah, he what he wanted to marry her. Okay. So, um, I his English wasn't good, so I kind of I didn't want to accept it. I made him repeat it, you know, over and over again, and then I finally just said dead, and he said yes, and then I didn't know what to do because I'm alone, so. I told the um, the guy at the front desk, and he said, well, do you have anyone we can call, like any relatives? And I said, no, because I didn't know of any relatives. They had lived there in Mexico for two months. Sandra had gotten to know the staff there quite well over that length of time. So recognizing the owner well enough to know him as someone as authority, she went to his room to see him. This nine-year-old girl, shocked, not quite understanding what had happened, knocked on the door and waited for an answer. 
When the owner came to the door, she told him, my mummy is dead. At first, he thought she was dead in the room, but she calmly explained that no, she is not in our room. Her mother's boyfriend followed her up and began speaking with the owner in Spanish. Sandra didn't know what they were saying to each other, but suddenly the tone changed and they said, your mother isn't dead, she is very hurt and in the hospital. The boyfriend needed someone to identify the body and thought that Sandra, at only nine years old, should be that person. Very poor judgment. The owner's wife stepped in and it was quickly decided against this young girl taking on any of that responsibility. And her family in Canada was found and contacted to come to Mexico to pick up the children and bring them home. And then an adult was there to take care of identifying the body and sorting out Waltrout's things. She was beaten so badly in the head that she was unrecognizable. Things could have been handled very differently from the beginning. Being told her mother was dead and then changing that and saying that she was in the hospital and later finding out the whole truth. Such unfair treatment and terribly confusing and damaging for such a young girl. But Sandra is very thankful that the owner's wife stepped in and that she had her family called there. Sandra's uncle came to collect them. An uncle she barely knew as her mother and sister were estranged. There were no familiar faces. They didn't have any family to speak of. Sandra and her brother left Mexico without their mother. They went back to Winnipeg waiting for her return, thinking that it would be any day and she would only have to get through another night's sleep with these almost strangers. That her mother would be home soon to take care of her and her brother. So many strangers were appearing in her life. Her father, whom she also didn't know as he was not in her life, came to collect her and she and her brother were suddenly being told that they would be living with him and his wife. Sandra was getting increasingly scared and worried, not knowing when Waltrout was coming home. Finally, a month after their return, they were told that their mother was dead. I said, well, what about Mota, like mother? And she said, well, Mota is dope, which means mom is dead. And, uh, and that's kind of, I think, when it, I realized she wasn't. Yeah, but she... Nobody in my family bothered to bring her body back. Oh, no. So she's buried out there. Why? I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know. During the initial time after her mother's death, she thought that her mother had died in a car accident. She was sad and missed her. Things were so completely different in her life now. No more loving mother to take care of her and be there for her, to go on adventures and spend time with. People she barely knew taking care of her. People she had no connection with. Four months later, her father told her that her mother had actually been murdered. When were you actually you know, sort of first aware that your mom hadn't died in a car accident and that it was a murder. And then as you got older, like, when did you start to understand what happened? Or or now, looking back, like, understanding it, what happened to your mother, actually? How did she get murdered? So, um, 
when I first found out, it was my my dad told me probably, you know, three three months or so after. It was later that year. Like it happened in August of 1977. So it would have been later that year, like November or December, that he told me. Um, and yeah, it was very hard to understand as a child. And he never put us into any sort of therapy or anything. So it just always, yeah, it just always kind of haunted me. And I always had this, you know, I think, oh, I'll go on Unsolved Mysteries or something, right? But I didn't have enough information. Like, how can they even do a show on me? Right. And that, and then it wasn't until, I guess, in 2000 and, I want to say 2001, um, it just, it just really bothered me. And I, I went to the cold case unit in Winnipeg and the cold case RCMP officer just, you know, he got the records for me. Of course, um, I applied to the access to information act. But unfortunately, even myself with my own mother's file, I can't read it because due to the Privacy Act, you know, 90% of it is whited out. From what I understand is that um, she was murdered and beaten in the head to, to the point where her face wasn't even unrecognizable anymore. So her skull was smashed. And she was found on Airport Road in Mazatlan, which is quite a ways, I think, from where we were staying. And interestingly enough, it's like by the airport. But I found out actually recently that that's where a lot of bodies get dumped. Sandra was hopeful that maybe if she read everything there was to read about Waltrout's case, it may trigger some sort of memory from that time when she was a child and things didn't make that much sense. But perhaps now she would be able to see things more clearly, differently. Perhaps a memory she had would actually mean something and help the case move forward. Living your whole life not really knowing what happened, relying on statements that people make that aren't necessarily fact, relying on those that didn't have a relationship with your mother to give you answers, was something she wanted to end. She wanted the facts, the truth, justice. In Mexico, things don't work the same as they do in Canada. There is no law about how long documents must be kept before destroying them. The Mexican government destroyed her mother's records. There were no answers as to why they did or when, just that they had. When her mother's body was found, they immediately notified the police. They found the boyfriend and notified him. Waltrout was still wearing gold earrings. She had been violently beaten in the head, but as nothing seemed to be stolen, it didn't appear to be motivated by robbery. Instead, it appeared to be a crime of passion. Sandra still had no answers. There was no evidence at the scene and no documents to shed any new information on this case into her waiting hands and heart. The speculation that Sandra hears does not bring comfort. There was never any arrest, no judgment day for her mother's murder, and she feels as though there never will be. 
Waltrout had a relationship in Winnipeg. It is believed by some that this man was going to join them in Mexico for a short visit, but had cancelled due to work engagements. Waltrout and her children had gone to Mexico to spend time with Waltrout's Mexican boyfriend, or fiancé it seems, as Sandra believes they were planning to be married. When the man from Winnipeg suddenly appeared in Mexico as a surprise, things took a possibly deadly turn. Sandra remembers her mother panicking when he appeared. Waltrout hadn't told him yet that she was planning on marrying someone else. Sandra remembers the Canadian man questioning her, asking repeatedly, does your mother have a boyfriend here? Sandra didn't really understand the implication at that age of telling the truth, but she did know that this man was very angry and upset by even the idea that her mother was seeing someone else and that her mother was in a complete panic. So she repeatedly lied and said no. Sandra's father believes that this man left Mexico the same evening that her mother was killed. Through investigating on her own and asking people many questions over the years, Sandra has learned that the unfortunate truth in Mexico is that you can hire someone to kill a person for a pittance, and it is very easy to find someone. In her young days, the days before Waltrout's murder, growing up and learning all of these facts that she never wanted to know through all of her research, there were nine years of calm, nine years before her mother was murdered. Sandra played the accordion and was involved in brownies, two activities she loved very much. The accordion brought out her creative side. She took lessons and looked forward to them. She would read the sheet music and practice a song until she knew it well, and this made her feel happy. At Brownies, she had the opportunity to socialize with other girls and play and be free to be herself. So much changed in her life after her mother's murder, including having these two activities taken away from her, adding to the anguish she felt every day, thinking about how if her mom were alive, things would be so different bursting the life bubbles she had been living for nine years, taking all normalcy, continuity, and structure from her life, being forced to not only grieve for her mother that she loved so much, but to grow up and face harsh realities that were far beyond what should be expected at her age. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool, so please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend and let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U- R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now back to the show. You ended up going then to live with your father, your biological father, right? Yeah. And you said that at 60 by 16, it was just a rocky relationship and you had to get out of there what 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 how was the, the relationship wasn't good right from the start how was it when he first took you to live with him he he was mean 
he made us call his wife um, mom when we just lost our mom. Oh. Um, they threatened me and my brother saying that if they ever divorced me and him would end up in foster home. We ended up moving and uh, yeah, and I ended up switching schools actually quite a few times. Struggles due to the grief, I presume? Um, you know, my dad just moved around, I guess, oh. in the city a lot. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, he ended up divorcing the person he was married to and then was a single father raising us. And then, you know, we had moved into uh, one of his girlfriend's place. So we had lived in a different area of the city and moved. And then we, they split up and then we moved back to the same area of the city. But I was going into junior high anyway. But oh. still, you're like, I was always felt kind of alone because I didn't have these long-term friends. Of course. You know, and it was very hard for me to establish these relationships. And then um, and then things got so bad at home at 16, I just left. And he sold my accordion on me and he kept the money. So I just felt like also a part of my soul went away. You know, not just losing my mom, but losing that creative side of me. Of course. Because of all the trauma. You said that you left uh, the the home at 16 years old. Where did you go? I, uh, I was living with a lady and another woman. Um, I met her while I was working. Uh, she was a bartender and I was a waitress. And, uh, yeah, so I rented a room at the house and I just started my life on my own at 16. And did you feel safer there and, and happier at least? I felt free. <laughs> okay, yeah. And away from abuse and that, um, but after seven years of going through that, you kind of still, it shapes you in some form. So you still carry it with you. Yes. And then you just have to start dealing with it through introspection or like some self-therapy or just some therapy. Um, yeah, it was, it was hard. Sandra wanted to be in therapy so badly. She knew she needed it to be able to lead a happy, healthy life. But therapy is expensive, and she just couldn't afford to pay for it. She would go as often as she could afford, but it seemed the money always ran out. Sandra turned to self-help books as a way to seek the much-needed support she needed. How has your mother's murder affected your life as an adult, do you think? Totally changed my life like completely because I never had children on my own um, because for two reasons I had to do so much work on myself that I couldn't bear the thought of bringing in a child 
and not being, you know, healed and not providing that child a healthy relationship. At least that's what I thought. And and then also I thought if something were to happen to me, who would take care of that child? And I didn't want that child, my child, to fall into the system or, you know, and it also has impacted my relationship, right? Like I never did marry. Um, neither did my brother, you know, and I think because we lost that early bond with her mouth and then, you know, same with our dad, we lost it. I mean, and he wasn't a very good father. So, and we've had to just kind of survive. Like, I always wanted to go to university and I also wanted to be in the arts. And I ended up becoming a blue-collar worker. And sure, I've, you know, people say, you should be proud of yourself. You, you're a huge success. I I am that I've, like, pulled, managed to, like, move on in, in the sense that I've been able to work in that. But I didn't want to be on welfare or anything like that. And yet it's been so difficult for me because... Um, I do find I have PTSD and sometimes I get really stressed out and uh, I think sometimes people just don't understand when I get like that. Um, You know, they might think I'm just overreacting or something, but meanwhile, it's just, you know, life, little life triggers stress me out when people, you know, don't follow through with their word because I like to be a person of my word. I feel a little bit abandoned and that's a trigger for me. And then I start getting really upset. And have you found any tools to help you through those hard moments? I do. I just, um, you know, I, I kind of just say to myself, it's not personal. Um, people are like that. Not all people are like you, <laughs> you know, and I, I just have to accept that other people are different than I am. There's times I still feel like I struggle a lot, you know, um, you know I, like I, I, I feel like I'm just trying to survive always rather than kind of laying low and relaxing a little, you know what I mean? And, right. and having more joy, I guess, in my life. Like there always have been seems like there's more sadness than joy sometimes. Um, it's been a very lonely existence. Sandra has learned to survive and tries hard to use coping skills that she has learned to get through the most difficult times. She also tries to have a relationship with her brother. They speak on the phone from time to time but don't really do things together. She is glad that she has that connection to her past even if it is an occasional one. Although Sandra struggled and at 16 years old had to make some very tough decisions, she moved out and wanted to work, and she always has. Her brother chose to go on social assistance for his life, and although that is not something she ever wanted, she still envies the fact that he has had access to free therapy and has had the opportunity that all the downtime he has had allowed him to think and process to grieve their mother's loss in a calmer and more restful manner. 
something she has never been afforded. The support group MOVA has helped her. They were able to get her some free counseling, which she is exceptionally grateful for. Sandra has tried to get changes made to the laws in Canada. She contacted the Justice Minister, explaining that the laws that are on paper, allowing access to counseling to very specific survivors, isn't necessarily straightforward. On paper, doesn't always make sense. She received a letter back saying, we are sorry for your loss, but we cannot help you. Her mother was murdered in Mexico. And although Sandra is a Canadian citizen, that wasn't enough. She wants the act changed so that support is available to anyone that needs it. Sandra feels strongly that if someone needs help, they should have access to it. She knows from experience how much counseling has and does help her. But not everybody has an employer that pays for it, or insurance that covers it, or is in a financial position to pay for it themselves. As a nine-year-old child, there should have been no questions asked. She should have had access to as much counseling as was deemed necessary. A mother murdered. Having to live in a toxic environment with an insensitive father and stepmother whom you are expected to call mother only a few months after yours has been murdered. Having no answers to what really happened to her mother. Having to live a completely different life devoid of your friends due to moves and familiar teachers with each new school change and the loss of her friend in the accordion being taken away. Something she had come to rely on as always being there for her, ready to play for her as soon as she picked it up. Sandra is strong to have made it this far in life. Being an independent, working woman, she has overcome so much and continues to do so every day. Her pleas to the Justice Minister are helping other people. They see the changes that need to be made and that she and her brother fell through the cracks back when they were children. And the big sting always comes when she thinks of how prisoners are given all the counseling they need, when victims and their families still don't receive what should be given to them without a second thought. And actually, they should be thought of first. All of this doesn't change the fact that she still wishes someone, somewhere, would have stepped in when she was a child to be sure that they were doing okay. For my 50th birthday, it was just my wish to go see her grave in, in Mexico. And um, I actually went down there and found it. And then I just, I didn't have much time because they said, do you want us to just exhume her? But I was just there for a few days. And I, it was such a hard decision, but I just ended up, buying some tiles from across the street and that and they just rebuilt it her her um kind of her grave site and then they planted a um I forget the type of tree but it's a tree that flowers um but it was really interesting how the how it all unfolded because they actually called me on my birthday while I was in because they couldn't find the grave at first. And then they actually found, called me on my birthday. So, and that was like something I always said, I'm going to see her on my 50th birthday. Oh my goodness. And it happened. And then, yeah, and then, you know, I met some waiter at a restaurant and he lived by the grave site and he 
going and watering that. I don't know if he still is, but he was watering that tree weekly. Like, it was just bizarre how the, there was so much, like, I want to say divine angels happening around me while I was down there. Like, it was, it was just amazing and that, but I still miss that she's not here, but, um, you know, and whether I'll ever make it back down there, but at least that was something I felt I had to do. It was just like a wish that ended up manifesting. That's just amazing. And what an experience for you. It's something you always wanted to do. And then there you are on your 50th birthday, you know, sort of seeing your mom's uh, resting place. So that, oh, wow. You must have felt just overwhelmed with emotion at that moment. Oh, yeah, I I was. (laughs) I can stop crying. What a lovely experience. When she was there, she found an old friend of her mother's and together they were able to find the hotel that they had stayed in all those many decades ago. In the 70s, it was a very small hotel, but of course, like most things, have changed so dramatically. Not just the hotel, but the whole area. The whole feel of the town. The city is huge now. It has fallen victim to the tourist industry being built up like so many oceanside places. When you look from the hotel that was once home to Sandra for a few months, all you see is another hotel now, blocking the view she remembers from her childhood, the spectacular view of the ocean she once so enjoyed. Like most things from that time, blocking her memories. As she walked through the hotel and saw the rooms, she could feel this was the hotel from so long ago. She knew this is where it had all happened. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. It, it, I, th- I thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Yeah, and thanks, Kelly, for giving me this opportunity to share it. Okay, thank you. You take care. Thanks, you too. Okay, bye-bye. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one. And let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain. But surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. 
Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.